when we come into the monastery and train as a novice or a bhikkhu. We come to live under the umbrella of Dhammavinaya, which protects us, but it's also a radical change of lifestyle for most people, depending on past karma. In the lay life we are used to getting what we want, so our habit is always to seek short-term pleasure, happiness. So we're used to seeking out things, getting what we like, what we want. People or situations we don't like, we're used to avoiding them or getting rid of them quickly. So often in the lay life we don't have a lot of mental suffering, again, depending on our karma. Then when we come into the monastery, we take on the Dhamma Vinaya, the training, so we're immediately practicing Nekamma in a very direct way. A lot of our comforts and desire for comfort and pleasure can't be met when you're practicing Nekamma. And we have to get used to and learn how to reflect on not getting what we want when we practice Nekamma. A lot of the sensual pleasures, smaller or bigger happinesses and pleasures that we used to have, we no longer have access to by the nature of this lifestyle. So we have to learn to be patient and tolerant in the beginning of our practice with that sudden lack of distraction, lack of certain, what we might perceive as freedoms, but it's really just the ability to follow desire. We have to be patient with that. And that's maybe our first task, is learn to to accept that and be patient with desire that comes up. Treat it skillfully, <coughs> obviously not to act on it, but to be patient, tolerant, and start letting it go. And in the same way with ill will, aversion, hatred. As soon as you come into the Sangha, you're mixing with people you didn't maybe didn't know before from different backgrounds, cultures, languages, countries even. And we're also dealing with the not getting what we want from the practice of Nekama. So it puts a lot of pressure on the mind sometimes. And we have a, naturally have aversion arise to people, situations, and just the frustrations of not getting what we want. But in the same way as dealing with the practice of Nekama, we're learning to deal skillfully with the aversion 
anger, ill will that arises in the course of practice, especially in the early part of our practice. It's our, one of our, must be one of our first goals in the practice, to learn just to accept the way things are, people, situations, the lifestyle, the practice. It's not you're trying to fool yourself you like everything and like the world and like the people around you in every way. There'll still be preferences in the mind. Like some people don't mm -hmm. click or resonate so well with others. Some parts of the routine or the daily experience of being a monk you might like, other parts you might not like. But in terms of training the mind towards liberation, we're learning to be tolerant of that dislike when it arises and not to follow it. And this is the practice of metta. Practicing metta isn't done as an ideal, just trying to fool ourselves into liking everybody in the world but it's dealing skillfully with the dislike when it arises. Friction, differences of opinion, different characters, habits, and so on. Having enough patience, tolerance, self-control not to give in to that dislike when it arises. In the first instance, that's the practice of metta. As Ajahn Buddha Dasa used to say, when a dog barks at you, if you bark back, that makes two dogs in the world. Uh, Bhikkhu's job is to learn not to bark back. Not bark, let alone bite. And Bhikkhu's job is to be patient, tolerant, not just of what's going on outside, but on the inside of our own moods and desires and reactions. And these two things are the core of our initial practice, learning sila, learning the vinaya, learning to practice nekama as a way of life, being celibate, not handling money, not having many possessions and so on. Practicing nekama and then practicing harmlessness learning not to bark back. And when we put effort into that, then we achieve something, we attain something, peace of mind that we can control ourselves. And we start to feel the ease, the happiness of keeping the sealer and feeling more at peace with ourselves because of it. It's that internal kind of happiness, freedom from remorse, guilt. Not seeking revenge on people that we don't like or feel hurt us. And not seeking to follow sense desire outside the bounds of good vinaya. We start to gain a sense of inner peace and happiness, just learning to be comfortable within the Vinaya. You might say that's our first goal. 
as the Upajaya teaches us when we are ordained, the practice of sila, when practiced well, is a, brings great benefit, great results, and supports directly the arising of samadhi, calm, stillness of mind, which is often what draws us into the practice of Buddhism, the search for peace of mind through meditation. And we often, as Lumpur Cha used to say, we want to jump over the step of sila straight into samadhi. We are keen for quick results. And often we find the Vinaya and sila in general as something a bit frustrating, even alien, annoying, difficult because we haven't been so used to it before we ordain. But in terms of training the mind for samadhi, I mean, you're learning to deal with hindrances skillfully, the five different mental hindrances. And if you're practicing sila and vinaya, then you already will be dealing with hindrances. You're keeping the vinaya properly. Really, you can't separate sila from samadhi. When we are talking about hindrances, we're talking about you know, quite normal reactions to things, habits of mind. A lot of the hindrances are just mental habits that we've, sort of ruts or ditches that we've fallen into for a long time. So they're deeply ingrained into our character in different, obviously in different ways, but basically divided up into the five groups, five hindrances. And you've got a choice really, it's whether you're going to be, let the hindrances be the master of the mind and always have to follow them, always give in to them, and let them rule the mind. Or we use the Dhamma Vinaya and the training to learn from the hindrances so make them our teachers and then go beyond the hindrances. Any time of day or night, whether you're sitting, walking, meditation, or just doing some other task or activity, you know, hindrances are arising all the time. But if you get that attitude right, that they're, they're our teachers, then can almost be curious even of states of suffering, frustration, dullness, sleepiness, worry, you know, the whole range of the hindrances, each one is actually teaching us something. It's where we can learn with the goal of understanding the hindrance, how it arises, and then how to abandon it. And that's your field of learning area of learning. Obviously this is something going on inside, so it's not always easy to show others what we're doing in the practice. But anyone, any bhikkhu practicing properly, it doesn't matter whether they have great barami or little barami, they think they're very advanced or very just in a beginner, that doesn't matter, but as long as they're developing this attitude of 
learning from the mentor experience and treating it correctly as a, as a place of learning. They're our teachers, the hindrances are our teachers and we're learning about them. As long as you have that attitude, then you can progress in the practice and really start to train the mind. Obviously the hindrances come up in so many ways that you know, there'll be some hindrances that are so deluding we don't know they're a hindrance. And that's a hindrance. <laughs> so it's an <clears throat> ever-deepening process of unraveling you know, habits of mind, reactions, mental states that we're used to following, holding on to. But that's obviously when they're, when they're strong, they're, they're our masters, they're in charge. So we have to have that ability to keep turning around and even questioning our own thoughts, opinions, mental states that are arising. Questioning them, challenging them, and bringing out appropriate remedies. And over and over again, our teachers point out that, you know, the most vital quality is just bringing up basic mindfulness and clear comprehension in the present moment, present moment awareness. Because when practiced well, it cuts through all the hindrances in all their forms. It's the most direct way to train this mind establish mindfulness, clear comprehension and see a hindrance as a hindrance and see the mind that grasps it as self and see through that. And this is not self, this is a hindrance that's impermanent, unsatisfactory and not self. It's without an owner, it's not a person, a being, me, you, us, them. It's just a mental state that arises from causes and conditions and passes away. So you're developing that, the skills to see a hindrance for what it is. And sati Sampajanya is what we need most of all. When Sati Sampajanya is there, practice well, well, no hindrance can arise. Sati slips a bit, well, hindrances slip, come back into the mind. We re-establish sati, then we can let them go again. And we're really we're practicing this in all postures, all activities. In the practice of sitting, walking, meditation, this is the most intense, direct way of looking at the mind and training in mindfulness. But hindrances will come up any time. So we're using the whole backdrop of our life in the robes, in the monastery, as a place of learning internally from our experience. Learning what leads to more confusion, what leads to a loss of mindfulness, certain activities, certain ways of speaking, certain ways of thinking lead to more confusion more suffering, less mindfulness. So over time, learning often through, through suffering, through mistakes, we start to ch adjust our behavior. You know, the Vinaya helps to streamline that, but we also need the wisdom, 
the reflectiveness to look back at what's going on and see well what leads to what. So obviously a lot of <clears throat> sense contact following sensual desire will just stir up more sensual desire, you know, looking at things that you want to look at. Indulging, you know, obvious things like say entertainment or looking at members of the opposite sex or reading a lot, watching things, so on, will naturally stir the mind up. I mean, there's no way around that unless one's mindfulness is strong. Dwelling on the things we don't like about ourselves, others, the place the things around us will always lead to more aversion, more negativity, states of ill will. Again, it's just logical, it's just obvious, but because of delusion we don't see what's going on so clearly. So a lot of the instructions Lumpur Cha, Lumpur Anand, our different teachers give us are not that difficult to understand, but it's about repeatedly applying them. So say Lumpur Cha's favorite phrase, eat little, sleep little, talk little. So it's just common sense, because the more we indulge, the more we stir the mind up, stir the hindrances up. Even the best of friends, the more they talk, sooner or later they'll have a difference of opinion and get annoyed with each other. The more we indulge in world, more worldly activities, you know, it's just obvious the mind will get stirred up, full of different sense objects, information that will feed hindrances. The more we eat and eat unmindfully, then the more tendency we have to sluggishness, dullness. And it's sometimes even the more we sleep, the more sleepiness we have. There's a, there's a balance. Obviously, sleeping very little can lead to exhaustion, but trying to escape boredom or just escape into sleep and just indulging in sleep doesn't, often doesn't get you beyond the hindrance of apathy, dullness, sloth and torpor. and so on. We have to learn from our experience of what leads to what. Bringing up mindfulness and then contemplating. And sometimes we have to be willing to really learn from a hindrance and see the suffering of it, what it does to the mind, how it blocks the mind from calming down, from stillness, how it stops skillful thoughts from arising and really have to start challenging it. You have those small battles where you argue with yourself, have that conversation with yourself instead of arguing with other people about how you want to train the mind to turn away from a particular hindrance, bring up its opposite, counter it, bring up energy and effort to counter it and so on. The aim of all this, you know, training in sila, training in samadhi, and 
working with the hindrances. The aim is to get to more experience, more stillness, quietness of mind. <coughs> so experience where the mind turns inwards is not seeking so much outside. You know, all our experiences of liking and disliking, the pleasure and displeasure for the world, yes, all the mind is going, always, the mind is always going out from itself, getting caught up in external objects and the reactions to them. The whole point when you practice sati and sampajanya and develop that in daily life, particularly with meditation objects like the breath, Marananu Sati or Gaya Sati and so on. When you keep developing Sati, then there's this development of internal awareness. The mind is less concerned with external issues. It's not that you're dull to the world or blind to the world, but the mind, the mind is peaceful inside. It becomes quiet and still, not so caught up with worldly issues. And this stillness is what we're looking for. It's like Lumpur Chao said, it's when you come to a meditation hall like this, you're looking for a way inside. There may be a number of different doorways you can come in. Your aim is just to get inside the hall so you can see what's there. Because looking in from the outside, it's not so efficient, it's not so clear. When we start to let go of hindrances, abandon them, ignore them, turn away from them and so on. Then the mind goes in inside to this place of quietness and stillness which just allows us to look at things so much better, more clearly. But that's not the end of the practice. In a way it's only the beginning because it's simply providing that clarity that then we can contemplate things without getting so caught up in them with a sense of we can contemplate with a sense of dispassion detachment see things for what they are see, see the three characteristics in our experience <clears throat> particularly the body and the only way we can really progress in the Dhamma is to turn around and look at the body as, as a body rather than just identifying it with it all the time as me, mine, myself. And this is like coming into the meditation hall, seeing what's inside. You come into your body mindfully by directing the quiet, still mind to it and seeing it as it is, a collection of elements that are without an owner. And that gradual change of perception towards your own body and breaking down the root cause of many of the hindrances you know, sensual desire lust, ill will it's rooted initially anyway around this identification with the body me, mine, myself and it displays itself in the body as you practice more mindfulness and your mind is more still as samadhi arises, then you see the suffering of lust rather than being obsessed with the objects of it. You're seeing it as an experience of desire, wanting, attachment, which is actually dukkha, 
it's not pleasant to keep wanting something because it keeps stirring the mind up. If you have peace and stillness and then wisdom functioning well, the mind is not get caught into wanting, it's content. Same with ill will, you see the, the unpleasantness of what ill will, aversion does to the mind. It's even reflected in the body, say the tensions of the body when we're angry. We see it as suffering. The mind naturally wants to root out the cause of that suffering and not feed further ill will. You have this comparison then between the states of stillness and the hindrances. So it's gradually a teaching the mind. And what does it want? Does it want to keep following mental states that arouse, excite, agitate the mind and ultimately lead to disappointment, unhappiness in different ways? Or do we want to free the mind from that whole process? So the practice of samadhi is the forerunner of wisdom. It gives rise to great benefit, great fruit, and that is the arising of panyas. The mind sees clearly the hindrances as hindrances, sees their cause, the unwise attention and the delusions that underlie them, and becomes happier and more content to let them go. you get to know things as suffering, then you're quite willing to let them go. And there's no second thought about it, there's no doubt about it, there's no lingering concern, maybe just a little bit more. You know, true wisdom is like that, it's, it's willing to drop things and not, not return, not go back. It just knows, and that knowing becomes so clear and deep to the mind that it, you know, the doubt, there's no room for doubt anymore. It's just clear, obvious, so apparent. And this is what really undermines the arising of more hindrances, more dukkha, more delusion. So you might say the practice is a process of refining these qualities of sila, samadhi, panya, deepening them and becoming more skilled in really understanding the mind, what is dukkha, where it comes from, how to remedy it. And they say the one who's ripe for experiencing Magapala, you know, their mind is ready to die, as it were, for for the Dhamma, Dhamma Vinaya. It's that important, it's worth dying for. In the end, it's the kilesas, the hindrances that die. The mind is allowing them to die. And all that's left is Dhamma. But 
you can say they're willing to die for the Dhamma Vinaya. It's that much commitment. And it's not a small thing, it's probably built up over a long, long time. It's not something that sounds dramatic or it sounds painful or willing to die for the Dhamma Vinaya, but it's also a, a, something that symbolizes strength, strength of mind, strength of commitment, strength of wisdom, clarity. You can let things die if you understand that they're just the source of suffering. It doesn't matter if they die. And you're willing to overcome you know, the pain, the obstacles, the difficulties in the practice. Because they take second place to the reward, you might say. The reward is a mind that's free of suffering. And this is the way Ajahn Chah used to talk. He said he gave everything, even willing to sacrifice his life for the Dhamma. Obviously he didn't die just meditating and practicing as a bhikkhu in that sense. But the mental capacity, the mental state was there, the willingness to give up everything, sacrifice everything for pursuing the Dhamma, you know, the insight, the understanding that liberates this mind. That's something special. If you keep bringing up that, reaffirming, bringing up the commitment to the practice, not in a sort of a macho way or a sort of just keep reaffirming sort of a sort of willpower to practice, but more a commitment based on wisdom, understanding and continued practice over time. If you have that kind of commitment, then this is this sense of being sac being able to sacrifice for the Dhamma becomes more natural, more obvious to the mind. And it brings with it certain, you might call certain baramis, not willing to give up in the face of a few obstacles, pain, discomfort, external obstacles, obstacles of other people, conditions around us, <clears throat> or internal. Not willing to give up, not being overcome and not letting the mind be overcome by the hindrances in certain situations. A true barami is like that, it's built, built up through sacrificing for the Dhamma. And then you gain certain qualities that just can't be shaken out of the mind. They're there. So that's a certain strength of mind, power of mind. This is why some of our teachers, they can do things like they make a aditana made with wisdom, not just sort of something done casually, but they make an aditana and it seems to come true. Maybe in their own personal practice or helping somebody else. True barami is like this, it's something that has a certain special strength of mind that's even beyond words sometimes, difficult to describe. Obviously the foremost in this is the Buddha himself, in the night of his own enlightenment, 
making his aditana not to give up until he'd freed his mind from suffering, even willing to sacrifice, the, let his blood dry up. Just, if there was just skin and bones left, he wasn't going to stop practicing. We may not feel we're at that stage yet in our practice, but the principle is there of learning to keep bringing up the patient effort, the commitment to the practice. And over time you find this brings these, the kind of qualities that you need to really free the mind from suffering, from the hindrances and from the effects of the hindrances, the suffering that we, we can experience confusion, the anger, the worry, the frustrations. So I'll leave you with these reflections tonight.